Hello everyone, my name is Ethan Heisler. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Bank Treasury Newsletter. And welcome to our first podcast. I am very excited today to be here with Murad Chowdhury. Murad is the author of an amazing tome, an amazing textbook on, on the principles of banking. And it's his second edition, which we'll have to ask him about. He is a non-executive director at Recognized Bank Limited in London, a non-executive director in the Loughborough Building Society, and an independent non-executive advisor on the Risk Committee at New Bank in Sao Paulo. He was born in Bangladesh and lives in Surrey, England. Murad, thank you very much for joining me. It's my pleasure, Mr. Heiser. Thank you very much for inviting me to, to be on this podcast. It's my pleasure. Well, I think as I, I, I go through this book, and you know, it's very, very detailed, who's the audience for this or is this for somebody who works in a bank or is this for an analyst trying to understand how the industry actually ticks? Most certainly the, the primary audience would be the former. It would be for bankers. It's aimed at practitioners, uh, not necessarily juniors either. It's, it's, uh, it's aimed at people who are working in banks right up to board director level. It, it's, the idea is it, it's about the, both the technical and the cultural aspect of managing banks so that they are long term viable and do good work for the whole, for all the stakeholders, you know, the community, their shareholders, their employees, other stakeholders, the regulator, for everyone, really. So, and it's a second edition of the text. So right. what, why, why is, so when was the first edition written? It was like 10 years ago, right? It was 11 or 2012, was the first edition, yes. And, and so what's in the second edition that was not in the first edition? Ma mainly uh, updates on things like regulation, uh, the first edition came out after the bank crash of 2008, uh, so it had the latest Basel uh, regulatory guidance. Uh, but since then, we've had additional things within the banking space that I think practitioners need to be aware of, whether that's additional regulation from the Basel Committee or the various regulatory authorities or new items for banks, for bank boards and bank directors to and bank executives to manage, like, for example, climate change risk management. And also we have greater competition. Uh, we had a 10-year era of very uh, low interest rates and flat yield curves, which was challenging enough. And then we have new issues like uh, fintech uh, loss of market share by new entrants in the marketplace. And also, as I mentioned, additional regulatory requirements or, or burdens, I could say, like uh, climate change risk management. So obviously the book comes out early 2023. And then Silicon Valley's Signature Bank and First Republic Bank. Yeah. So here in the states, we've seen a lot of pulls to tighten bank regulations, and you know, it's a, a Basel III endgame. Obviously, is a, is a big topic of conversation. And I have to say, from my standpoint, I've never seen so much attention on the bank treasury function as I do today. It's, it's absolutely from going from no one cares about the arcane aspects of held to maturity or available to sale. So that's being everything that we do. Absolutely, yes. So, you know, but I guess the question I would ask is, now the UK banks, they haven't gone through anything like what we've seen here in the US. Are, are UK banks also dealing with very heavy underwater bond portfolios at this point? I mean, Not in the way uh, that it impacted those failed banks uh, in the US this year. By the way, I should just say, um, I'm unsurprised to hear that all of a sudden, 
your specialist area, Treasury, is getting all this attention because those failures, particularly Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, possibly less so Signature Bank, but that's debatable. Those failures were failures of asset liability management and Treasury, whether it's the board or the ALCO or the Treasury Department. It was similar back in 2008. We'd had five, 10 years of no one caring about Treasury and and it's a bull market. And then we've got the bank crash and suddenly there's a tension back on it again. And then we've had 10 years of or just over no volatile rate, no volatility in rates, flat curves. And then it, it starts going up again so that the attention has come back. Uh, but this is quite a, an old, it's it's a traditional bank discipline. Managing bank balance sheets, you know, managing uh, asset liability mismatch in banks, it, that's a tradition that's a, it's a discipline that's as old as banking. So 500 years old, it, it didn't rely on regulators telling us what to do. Uh, to answer your question, do UK banks sitting on that, not to the extent that it impacted those failed banks, because the regulation in the UK makes every bank obliged to follow uh, managing interest rate risk in the banking book, whereas in the US, that regulation only applied to certain large institutions above a certain balance sheet size. Not that I'm saying that's a failure of the regulator, because as I said, this is a traditional discipline. You shouldn't need a regulator to tell you how you should manage interest rate risk or liquidity risk. So I, for one, don't see those failures as a failure of regulation. I see them as a failure. Do you think, think Murad, that there was circumstances with these institutions that overtook them that we haven't seen before? I mean, we, we, we were dancing on one of the questions I shot to you, shot over to you, is you should ask. I mean, what's a core deposit today? I'm not okay. as sure as a core deposit yesterday. Is that but possibly? Is that Let's come to that. Let's come to that. Let's just take let's. And that's a very pertinent question right now. Everyone's talking about it on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, let's just take your first question about is there anything new that came about that 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 hadn't before? Not in the main interest rate risk and liquidity risk issues are, as I said, as old as banking itself. The only new aspect of it, we can consider that a subset is the speed of transition. That's something I'm calling social media risk. So unlike previous bank runs, whether it's Northern Rock here in the UK or Washington Mutual in, in the US, you know, it, it, unlike previous bank runs where the, the, the speed of transition is played out over, over days and weeks, here it was in a matter of hours, you know, in a 48 hour period or less, there was multi-billions going out the door, you know, because of the bank run, uh, the, the herd, you know, the herd withdrawal from, from all depositors. So I'm calling that social media risk because news it's like proverbial spreading like wildfire. We should want to take that into account. But the original sin is mismanagement of ALM. And I wouldn't say that's new. We've seen that before. We've seen that in previous bank runs. We've seen interest rate volatility in the past. Uh, in fact, uh, 40 odd years ago, at the turn of the 80s, the rise in US dollar rates uh, by the Federal Reserve was much more aggressive and volatile than we saw in the last 18 months or so. And that impacted uh, savings and loans institutions in, in quite a significant way. So the idea of interest rate volatility uh, causing balance sheet impact is not new, but the social media aspect, the speed of transition transmission is. Now your next question was, what is a core deposit? Certainly worth asking. I wouldn't say it is greatly changed today from what it was viewed to be, you know, 12 months ago. The only aspect of course is we have to be much more conservative in our assumptions of what is core and the the, the stability, the stable funding behavior of that core deposit. So, okay, so right away, are uninsured deposits or deposits? I would say it depends who the customer is. If it's above the insurance limit, and I know exactly what you're getting at here, and the customer is a corporate entity or a, a professional, you know, a partnership, say a law firm or a large corporate uh, or a non-bank FI, then I'd say they're completely not core. 
Uh, on the other hand, if it's a retail, take a private bank. Take a private bank customer who, have, who may have many millions on deposit with his or her private banking institution. That's not an insured deposit. But from my understanding, when I've seen private bank, uh, we had one at RBS in my day at RBS, they're very stable. So it's not so much necessarily the balance or its insured value. It's more the type of customer that one has that I think should be as important as whether it's insured or not when taking into consideration its core behavior or core quality. And then I guess the other question then comes back is how do you report that to the public from an internal reporting? Does it become too complicated for people to manage this that way? It just seems to be so many different snowflake type variations on the theme of what a deposit is that trying to actually categorize them is easier said than done. Well, certainly if you have a full service bank that, that has every kind of customer on its balance sheet and every type of product on its deposits, its deposits product suite, it, it does become very complicated. So I personally, again, using my from my big bank background, I would err on the side of just being more conservative and not making uh, you know aggressive assumptions because of the complexity of determining what their behavioral characteristic is. So it, it really depends how conservative one wants to be in determining the sticky funding or the stable funding factor of the deposit base. And also um, it depends on how concentrated instant access products are in your deposit base. If all of my funding was instant access, you know, I just need to swipe the, smart, the mobile app on my phone for the bank and get the money out, then I have a bigger issue than, for example, if 30% of my funding was term deposits or notice deposits and uh, the, the rest was instant access. So would you say that things like Fed Now in the States, and I think you have an equivalent in the UK, right? Yes, it's called Faster like Payment. Instant, instant yes. payment. Right. We do, yes. It's uh, yeah, for, for small size. Yes, I don't think for, for fast it's called faster payments. So I don't think it's as high as that, but it sounds about it's 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 in it's in, it's in the something thousands. But yes, it's it's Does that of, change the character of deposits in your mind? Are deposits shorter? And if they are, what would be your approach to how you go about hedging the, that risk? You mean mitigating really, because it's not really possible to hedge liquidity risk, is it? So how I would address that risk in some other way? Well, it's not just liquidity risk. It's also the interest rate risk of deposits. By modeling the deposits from an asset liability management standpoint, if I model my deposits as five years, right. I have checking accounts and I yes. model them as five years. Five I would like to tell people, I have a 47-year checking account relationship with my institution. I've never left. So, you know, you model it for five years, but the examiner comes in and says, you know, best practice is really more like four years. Okay, yes. But what if they really are still five years? Because, right. again, I haven't left. I understand exactly, and if the customer is like you and me, a retail customer, I, I'm like yourself. I've been with the same. I've been with that West since, you know, since my mother opened the account account for me when I was 18. You know, so I'm the same, and that's going back to 1984. So I understand exactly what you're saying. In terms of interest rate risk, if the bank is modelling that balance as five years and using that to imply a hedge to say five year fixed rate lending, it's doing, then of course you are taking a risk if there is an outflow that the interest rate risk isn't hedged. But let's address the liquidity risk uh, hedging or mitigation first. So I would address the concentration. I would I would have a share of the funding that was fixed term rather than checking accounts. And I would have a share that was 
different types of customers. So whether it's retail, small corporate, large corporate, you know, uh, you know, local authority, you know, government agencies, I would have a diversity of customer base as well as a diversity of products. That should mitigate the liquidity risk as well as, of course, a, you know, a, a liquid asset buffer, which, of course, Basel makes us hold now minimum anyway because of liquidity coverage ratio. In terms of the interest rate risk, I will need to, and this is a discussion, this is a debate for the Asset Liability Committee. We will need to have a debate as to how safe we're being if we assign a five-year tenor to that checking account balance and then say, right, we're hedged on our fixed rate lending for five years because of that. And it turns out it isn't because now I'm, I'm under hedged to the lending. So again, it's, it's a question of how conservative one wants to be because the, the more I put on a derivative hedge or I match fund it, the less PL I make. So it's a trade-off between being safer and making the PL. We're definitely going to touch on that before we stop. But you know, you mentioned the liquidity coverage ratio. I think you've criticized the liquidity, Basel free liquidity metrics of liquidity coverage ratio and the net stable funding ratio. For those who people who are not that familiar, liquidity coverage ratio is a short-term liquidity measure. A net stable funding ratio is the companion ratio that was intended as the long-term measure. So the liquidity yes. coverage ratio is how much liquid assets do you need to hold to manage 30 days of output? That's the basic premise of that. And the net stable funding ratio is I want you to have illiquid assets uh, covered by stable funding. So it's taking the liability cycle they're on the, on the uh, asset side and the LCR is the opposite. So Correct. after that, yeah. what, what would you do instead of that? That, that's a great question. First of all, may I just say, I, I, that's criticized is probably too strong a word. I wouldn't say okay. it. <laughs> uh, what it was is in the first edition, I did pre present some potential alternatives. Let's take the easy one first. Let's take net stable funding ratio. Ultimately, it's a set of assumptions divided by another set of assumptions. Personally, I think if we took the share of genuine long dated funding, whether it's uh, you know, behavioral retail funding or actual contractual long dated funding. I mean, if I issue a, a three year or a five year medium term note as a bank, it's going to cost me more, but it is genuine long term funding. So I think if we could have an actual share of long dated versus short dated funding, we'd have a more meaningful long term funding metric. Um, with regard to that's my view on the NSFR, and that's what I mentioned in the first edition. But in the liquidity coverage ratio, the numerator is, of course, the liquid asset buffer or the HQL, the high quality liquid assets portfolio. So that's a real number. The denominator is, as you quite rightly said, it's a 30 day stressed outflow. How, and you were saying, what, what's my view on that? How, how, would, how would I replace it? Um, it? It is ultimately, I assume this is the stressed outflow. So I need this much liquid assets. Basel doesn't allow a bank to have bank assets in the numerator. So that's one of the Basel rules. If I have a deposit with JP Morgan, I can't assume that is available to me. I think if I couldn't take my money out of JP Morgan, I've got more serious problems than my own liquidity stress, because then the whole world is in some trouble. It's a bit like with HSBC, for example. So that is one thing. I'd probably propose something which I'll call a liquid cash ratio, which is as opposed to liquidity coverage ratio, where the instant liquid assets, so no securities, cash at the central bank, cash at other banks, that's the numerator. The denominator would be an assumption of stressed outflow, but it would be much more immediate short term. And that's my takeaway from Silicon Valley Bank. Rather than 30 days, maybe we should address seven days, because if there is going to be a bank run, it's going to play out very quickly. You know, we're going to see if people want to take their money out as Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank and Signature Bank showed, they'll take it out very quickly over a weekend. So actually, maybe we should look at a, a very short term metric, let's say three days or seven days, let's say seven days, liquid cash, 
and then take a genuine long-term metric that says, what's your share of all your funding that is genuinely long-term, contractually long-term? And then you could set a minimum for that. So 20 or 30% off the top of my head. And I think that would be more meaningful rather than these assumed metrics we use, um, you know, for, for the two. And I'd probably, I'd probably add those to the Basel ones and, and work off both. Incidentally, the UK regulator, the PRA, is proposing for small banks only, banks below a 20 billion balance sheet. The UK regulator is proposing something to replace NSFR called retail deposits ratio. Now, this is going to go straight back to your question of how I define you know, retail and how stable it is. But if you have your share of all your funding is at least 50 percent of it or more is retail deposits. So you have an RDR, retail deposit ratio. You don't need to report or monitor NSFR anymore. So I was quite interested in how they're replacing NSFR for small banks with this retail deposits ratio, which is basically saying if you are retail funded, you are more stable. I still think there should be a minimum contractually long dated funding share. It could be 5%, it could be 25%, but there should be some element of that to share, to, to be of genuine use to, to, well, to analysts or risk managers. Right, but do, do you think that any institution could hold enough liquidity and stay and have enough shareholders to support it if it met a seven day outflow test? I mean, I, I guess it's, it's really at the end of the day, would you invest equity in such an institution? And that's the $64,000 question, isn't it, Ethan? So would I hold shares in a banking institution? The answer is yes, provided it had essentially a diversified balance sheet structure. That doesn't mean it has to be particularly large or be a full service bank, but it does need to avoid concentration. That used to be the old mantra for credit risk management, didn't it? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. It should be the same mantra for liquidity risk. As long as it didn't have a concentration of funding by customer type or by tenor point or by product type, then I, and it had a, obviously had a good business model, a good strategy, then absolutely. I don't see why I, I would consider that a stable share to hold in. To, to I, that's, that's, that's wonderful. And I would have continued to believe in that idea through Silicon Valley or Signature or, or understood that point. Until you come to First Republic Bank, right? And you see the conclusions that the FDIC just wrote about where their deposits were, they had a very large uninsured deposit reliance, yes. which certainly raises a risk flag. But on the other side, they did all the other mitigating, risk mitigating actions that you would take, as was currently understood would mitigate risk. I mean, they weren't as concentrated in terms of their funding base as Silicon Valley Bank, but they still had a preponderance of fund of deposits from a large corporate non-bank FI customer base. And they and still fail. Yes. And I think and I think that again, so again in the UK we have this thing called pillar two liquidity, which addresses concentration risk in funding. And I think that's something that only the systemically important banks in the US are obliged to follow. The Federal Reserve doesn't apply it to to smaller banks. Um, again, I, I don't think this is a failure of regulation. I think it's a failure of, of bank management. But so your question on First Republic Bank, they still had an excessive concentration on a particular type of customer base. And, you know, birds of a feather flock together, so to speak. And when when one type of customer sees all its other similar types pulling money out, they, 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 there's a herd mentality. Banking is all confidence. The minute you lose the confidence of a large, of, of a significant share of your customer base, you're, you're kind of in trouble, really. Um, you know, we can maintain confidence by demonstrating a good fund, a sound funding structure to start with. 
and sound risk management principles to start with. That should help maintain confidence amongst our customers. Fair. But do you think there is return to be made for equity shareholders in large financial institutions that meet all of these new larger liquidity requirements, larger capital requirements, TLAP, the whole sort? Is that a viable investment idea? I'm going to say yes, but I have to caveat that. One, it's a, one has to have a long-term view. And two, the idea that what might have been an acceptable return on capital, say, you know, 10 or 20 years ago for holding a bank stock, say 12 to 15%, um, isn't realistic because of the onerous regulation. And you've just mentioned a handful of them, <laughs> things like TLAC and higher capital buffers. Because of onerous regulation and increasing competition from more nimble players who aren't subject to regulation, like fintech and certain types of challenger banks and neobanks, then, and, and, and I say that because of their size means they don't have to have so much regulatory prescription on them. The target should be a more stable returning share investment over the long term, but it's not necessarily too much above double digits. You know, if we were to, if an investor was to look at, I want a steady, non volatile earnings profile, then a bank stock would fit that, provided it didn't have a concentrated uh, balance sheet structure. Uh, but one should be looking at 8 to 10% rather than, say, 12 to 15% return on capital over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. At the moment, there is a lot of challenges for, how should we put it, traditional commercial banks, you know, whether it's competition, onerous regulation, you know, um, I mean, at least interest rates now are, and the yield curve is, is at a level where there is some net interest margin to be made. But the combination of competition and excess regulation makes bank returns I would suggest, and I'm not an equity analyst, but I would suggest lower over the next 10 years than they would have been, say, at the turn of this century or possibly even over the last five, 10 years when we had a stable interest rate environment. So I'm going to say yes, but we have to expect a lower return in that time. It's not really a great selling idea, but I, you know, let's... <laughs> but you wanted an honest answer. I have one more question for you before we close. Yes. Would you hedge your balance sheet today for your bond portfolio that's fixed rate? Would you, it's it's underwater. Would you hedge it where it is now? Right. Your question assumes I haven't. It's at the moment it's unhedged, right? It's none of it is hedged. At the moment that, it's not hedged sufficiently. I have to admit, and because being an old ALM and money markets man, I would have to suggest today it wouldn't be worth hedging it now because I think we're at the top of the cycle, more or less. More or less, we're at the top of the cycle. Some people think we've got one more rate rise to come. Possibly. Uh, I think possibly not. So I don't see why I would hedge it now. So if I'm receiving fixed on the bond portfolio, then I'm not sure I would want to hedge it now as it's been unhedged all this time through a 500 basis point rate rising over the last 18 months. So my short answer to you, if I'm attending your ALCO, would be no, there's no point putting the hedge on now. It's underwater for the last 18 months. So if you had a bond portfolio that was underwater, would you sell the bond portfolio today? and reinvest in a new portfolio and earn that income back? Or would you let it bleed through that interest income? If if I sell today, do I have the capital base to absorb that loss and still be viable? Then you do, yes. I would have the capital base to absorb it. Then now would be a good time to take that loss and reinvest at where I think it's a personal view is more or less the top of the cycle, the rates rising cycle. So there would be better value in taking the loss now. In fact, if you took the loss now, you'd probably want a couple more rises, right? Uh, take the loss now and then reinvest at 
today's levels, not necessarily very long dated because I think the curve is, I mean, it's inverted, but I would, I would reinvest now to take the loss, absorb the loss, and then over the next the five years... The reason I ask you that question is because essentially that's the same thing, isn't it? Economically, I can sell the portfolio today, take the loss and earn it back, or I could just put a hedge on it, which would basically accomplish the same thing. Or if you believe that rates are headed low, and I'm asking this just from the standpoint of ALM and what you've written in your book, for any asset liability manager, whether they're here or across the pond, do they hedge where we are now or not? It seems like a central dilemma that every bank treasurer I speak to is talking yeah, about. Absolutely. And you'll probably get 50% saying one and 50% saying the other. My personal view is hedging comes with a cost in addition to the mark to market. So if I'm paying fixed on the swap now, and you're quite right, I've potentially got a double whammy as rates start to come down. And also I've got collateral funding costs. I'm not so sure if the collateral funding requirement in the, for small US banks is the same as in the UK, but there is a cost associated with funding the derivatives mark to market, even if I'm mark to market positive because of central clearing, I assume it's the same in the US, um, as well as the fact that the rates have got to go in a way that it's more or less the same. I would prefer not to use up my swap lines and take the loss on the portfolio now, reinvest at today's rates. And then as we start hitting the rate cutting cycle over the next, let's say, two to three years or two to five years, maybe if you wish, then I won't have incurred the hedge cost. I'll just then be recouping some gain as you will start to come down the bond portfolio. So you'll probably get 50% of your, your treasurer saying one and 50% the other. I'm on the side of those who think it's better to take that loss, absorb the capital loss, reinvest, and then not take the additional hedge cost that would come out if I'm putting the swaps on now as well. So I'm on that camp. I'm going to take a punt and think that you're getting about 50-50 response to that question. Oh, I agree with you. I, I agree with you 100%. You are going to get 50-50. That's the state of the market. Well, anyway, Murad, I really want to thank you for spending time and talking to me today. It's my pleasure. We'll have to have you do this again. And again, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, if you don't see his book, by the way, there is an e-version. I know because he sent it to me. But uh, <laughs> the second edition, The Principles of Banking by Murad Chaudhry, it's, it's probably... One of the most detailed books I've seen since uh, Marsha Stigham's The Money Markets, which I was writing about in one of my newsletters this summer. Well, I'm in very great company there because I know the high regard of, of uh, Mr. Stigham's uh, reputation in the money market. So thank you very much, Ethan, first for inviting me. A real pleasure and a real great fun to chat to you. And of course, anytime, always having to chat to you on any topic to do with banking and finance. So thank you again. Let's do it again. Thank you. <laughs>